Hi, welcome to InSync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. And I seem to have misplaced my big notebook. And I'm part of A Squad. Just kidding. I'm a loner. Yeah, I'm not part of A Squad. Romy and Michelle's high school reunion is one of the funniest, quirkiest, silliest, best dressed, and most empowering be yourself comedies to ever come out of the 1990s. Or maybe ever. It stars Mira Sorvino and Lisa Kudrow and directed by David Merkin. Romy and Michelle's high school reunion centers around two 28-year-old best friends staring down the barrel of their 10-year high school reunion. Romy Sorvino works as a cashier in the service department of a Jaguar dealership. And Michelle, Lisa Kudrow, is unemployed but wants to be a fashion designer. And feeling like they haven't accomplished anything in their careers, they decide to reinvent themselves as successful entrepreneurs in order to impress their former classmates. Since Romy White and Michelle Weinberger attended high school in the 80s, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion is packed with a delightful series of era-specific needle drops with contributions from the Go-Go's, Bananarama, Culture Club, Tears for Fears, Belinda Carlisle, and in a pivotal scene with Alan Cumming, Cindy Lauper. Yes, it is time to talk about the three-person modern dance sequence in Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, which is soundtracked by the one and only Time After Time. How did Time After Time make it into the movie, and why the hell is it not on the movie's official soundtrack? And how did this interpretive dance scene happen? All this and more on the latest episode of Insane. I'm the Mary. I'm the Mary! Saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. So, Rachel. Yes. You love this movie. This is one of my all-time favorite movies of all time of all time. Why? Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> when I first saw this movie, a lot of it went over my head because I think I was about nine or ten when I first saw it. It came out in 1997, and like something in this movie 
connected with me. Like, I saw a lot of myself in both Romy and Michelle, especially when they're in high school. They have aspirations to let's just get out of this town where they grew up, which is Tucson, Arizona. And Tucson could be a stand-in for any town that, that someone grew up in and longed for something bigger. And they want to move to L.A. And I knew for me, I wanted to move to a big city one day when I grew up. And I tended to wear things as a kid that were like really loud in the same way that Roby and Michelle, like in both their high school experience and then as they're older in their 20s, like they just I, I didn't design and create my own clothes. I'm not visual like that. And I, I cannot design anything, but I do love clothes and I do love fashion. I'm not in any way like a fashionista, but I really love like an aesthetic. Loud and, and proud. I, this time in the 90s was a very like visibly bright time. A lot of super bright neon colors that were, I think, a little bit more futuristic than like the bright colors of the 80s. And like I wanted to dress like the Spice Girls. I wanted to dress like these characters. But when they went to school, they're like made fun of, they're misunderstood. They're clearly not very popular. I just saw a lot of myself in them. Like they took like a minute. They didn't fully, I think, appreciate like what made them stand out was so great. And like that's what sets them apart in the best possible way. And but like they were kind of my heroes and they really still are these two women that go to their reunion and like feel even though they feel the need well really more one of them feels the need to um create a lie around their success or lack thereof and the other one's just kind of along for the ride but um like I've bonded over this movie with my closest girlfriends who have felt the same way like it's really a movie about friendship and that's like I'm actually not like a, in my per, in my personal social life. I'm not like a big group person. I've, I've always been more of like a one on one sort of person. That's like I think where I thrive in like smaller groups. And so like I just feel so much of this movie in my bones because I feel like I can see myself. And this is a very long winded answer. That's how much I love this movie. Yeah, I think I think that this is a really interesting film and i also i saw it on late night tv like hbo or showtime or something as a kid around the time it came out and i saw it i think for what the studio wanted it to be not that i'm like 13 year old mr studio guy but like <laughs> i i saw it as like a like a fun weird absurd buddy comedy and i didn't yeah. i didn't see the aspirational and the letting your freak flag fly thing until I was much older. And I think that this is the struggle that created the movie itself, right? Is that there's two creative camps in this filmmaking process, and one of them wants it to be very broad and very funny in like an episode of The Simpsons, and the screenwriter had kind of bigger designs on it. But breaking this movie down feels like my biggest challenge yet, I think you say that every time. I know, but I feel yeah. it every time. Well, yeah, we have to just keep leveling up. Yes, it's true. With you, yeah. But encapsulating the genius that is Romy and Michelle's high school reunion in one brief plot synopsis is, is pretty tough, especially because like this isn't a plot-heavy movie. But as we mentioned, 
Romy White, played by Mira Sorvino, and Michelle Weinberger, played by Lisa Kudrow, are two 28-year-olds who have not made much of their lives. They live in Venice, California. Romy works as the receptionist at a Jaguar repair shop, dealership thing. Michelle doesn't have a job, but we aren't defined by her labor. And she wants to be like she wants to like work on a at a shop at a f- in, on, on Rodeo Drive yeah, or something. Right. Yeah. She wants to work at like Hermes, Hermes, Hermes. Hermes. <laughs> and the girls have a unique fashion sense, potentially. I I would think that they, along with the Spice Girls, like kicked off this shiny, futuristic fabric lame sort of thing that the early 2000s was defined by and which we see returning in Gen Z fashion. But Romy and Michelle are losers. They were losers in high school where they were bullied for having back braces and headgear and before the shiny dresses and the peroxide blonde hairdos. And they're kind of losers now who have deluded themselves into thinking that they're too good for everyone and everything. They're just obsessed with each other. They are just obsessed with each other. That is a great way of putting it. <laughs> and every, people need to get on their level. But yeah. why not jump at the chance to go to their 10-year high school reunion in Tucson and make everyone who bullied them eat crow? First, they need a car. So Romy allows one of the mechanics at the Jaguar shop to tell everyone that he slept with her in exchange for a loner Jaguar. And in a very funny and I think entirely improvised scene where they like pull the curtain and Ramon gets to conquer her like the Columbus or, or whatever. <laughs> I am Columbus. And wait, and you, you're, you you're are Columbus, Columbus and I am America. Discover me, Ramon. Just discover me. Yeah, which she made up and apparently everyone like broke it's <laughs> amazing so this is a classic story about lying about who you are at your high school reunion so that your old bullies and crushes think that you turned out much better than you did on the road Romy and michelle's friendship is tested by among other things the backstory that michelle wants to use which is that she invented post-it notes yep and this causes a rift in the once rock solid Romy and michelle But after a lengthy dream sequence, they arrive at the reunion, having tamped down their loud outfits and personalities in order to convince people that they are successful, quote unquote. Michelle does the post-it note thing, which does not work, basically gets laughed out of the room. Romy runs into her high school crush, Billy, who humiliated her at prom. We all had a Billy. We all had a Billy. Regardless of gender, we all had a Billy. But we all have the Billy Coda, which is Romy finds out that Billy is significantly over the hill and on his third kid with the popular girl from high school, the girl from the A squad. The biggest shock, however, is Sandy Frank, played by Alan Cumming, who was so in love with Michelle in high school that he had to hide his uncontrollable erection with a big (laughs) notebook. Sandy has become a billionaire, not just in Michelle's dream, but in real life. And he arrives at the reunion just as Romy and Michelle are at their lowest. Our heroes decide to return to the reunion as who they really are. Loud, weird losers. And they dance together to our song of the week, Time After Time, which was nominated for a 1998 MTV Movie Award for Best Dance Sequence. Should have won. Should have won. was robbed. What was it robbed by? Was it like She's All That or something? I don't know. Let's find out. Yeah. MTV Movie Awards. Uh, it was Mike Myers' Soul Bossa Nova in the beginning of Austin Powers. Yeah, that's a uh, that's tough. It's tough. They beat the <laughs> full tough. Monty, which is kind of fucked, and something from a life less ordinary, which is a movie I haven't thought about in twenty years. And Mark Wahlberg from the beginning of Boogie Nights. MTV, what are you doing? 
Wow. Anyway, this movie is weird. I want to talk a little bit about the stickiness of mm. Romy and Michelle, which is a movie that barely made back its meager budget. Stickiness is a good choice of words. Stickiness. When we're talking about post-its. Yes, right. it's true. Yeah. yeah. It barely made back its meager budget in 1997, but it's become a cult classic. So you talked a little bit about this, but like, what is it about this movie that's great? Friendship. Fashion. Fashion. If you love fashion of any era, if you just enjoy leaning into a look, then you'll love this movie. It does feel like a time capsule. It is a time capsule. And well, also, I think at the end of the movie somewhat it might be michelle she's like you know i think everybody was somebody's bully in high school because janine garofalo is also in this movie and she plays like a super loner she's like she admits to romy and michelle that she was always jealous of them and she herself bullies cameron manheim Mm -hmm. yes so it's kind of like it's this understanding by the end of the movie that in high school, like everybody made someone else's life hell. And it almost like makes you reflect like, did I make someone's life hell? Cause you would have just never known. Let's bring them out. And <laughs> it's also, this is also a time capsule because it makes me think today about the like place reunions in-person reunions really hold. We love to watch a reunion from one of our favorite movies or TV shows. Like, I live for, like, a Dawson's Creek or a Felicity reunion, like, 20 years on. But what in the age of social media do do reunions, like, your average high school or college reunion mean anymore? I don't think that they have. It's like they don't exist anymore, I don't think. They physically exist. Yeah, right. But they like, they do happen. The but how? Like it may. I don't have the answer for this. Yeah. But I wonder what the numbers look like. How? Oh, I can. How? Tell you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Is it? I'm gonna make a were, big big reveal okay. later on oh, this show. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's part of why I, I think. Like on the surface, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion is like fun and weird and silly. But it also has a lot of depth, like the two main characters, because everyone underestimates them. They underestimate themselves. And and the people behind the camera also underestimated them, is the mm-hmm. short version of this story. So the film itself started as a bit part in a one-act play written by screenwriter Robin Schiff. So first off, Robin Schiff was not just like a screenwriter. She was a teacher at Groundlings who was so sought after that Lisa Kudrow used to tell her friend Conan O'Brien how lucky he was that he got to be in Robin's class. But I digress. Robin Schiff wrote this play called Ladies Room. And this is from Vogue's Oral History, which is an incredible resource if you love Romy and Michelle's high school reunion as much as Rachel does or as I do, which is slightly less than Rachel does, but still a lot. <laughs> it's the definitive oral history. It yeah. is the definitive oral yeah. history. So Robin Schiff says, I wanted to write a play that took place in a women's restroom at a pickup bar and make it all about the things that women talk about when men aren't around. And I even went out to do a little research. So Lisa Kudrow, do you want to be Lisa Kudrow? Yeah. This is Lisa Kudrow. Robin put together a read-through of Ladies' Room for potential financiers, and my teacher at the Groundlings recommended me for it. At that point, Romy and Michelle didn't have names. I think they were 
airhead number one and airhead number two in the script. So back to Robin. I made the play one long scene because I didn't want to deal with set changes. And the women would come into the bathroom and talk about whatever happened in the bar and then go back out. So I needed filler for those moments between. Romy and Michelle were my filler, like the Rosencrans and Guildenstern of the play. I randomly assigned Christy Meller to be Romy and Lisa Kudrow to be Michelle at the audition. And this is Lisa again. Christy's line was, I hate throwing up in public. And I was supposed to say me too. But I thought it'd be really funny to say it like they were soulmates. Like, oh, me too. Yeah. So Lisa said, this is Robin. Lisa said, me too. Like it was the biggest coincidence in the world. And I can hear, this is Aviv. I can hear Lisa Kudrow saying this in my head. Like it was the biggest coincidence in the world that another person also hates throwing up in public. One of the reasons she's such a genius is because she doesn't necessarily read a line the way I heard it. Lisa showed me what I had written. So this was inspired by some hilarious conversations that Robin overheard at pickup bars. And Ladies Night opened in the fall of 1988. It ran for eight months and had an off-Broadway run in New York. And Christy Meller and Lisa Kudrow were Romy and Michelle. And then Aaron Spelling of Beverly Hills 90210 and all of those like teen heartthrob soap opera shows of the early 90s put up the money because he thought that this could be a a television series and that television series went to pilot and the pilot was called just temporary (laughs) i just want to note that this is 10 years before romy and michelle the movie comes out also i want to say this is six years before friends becomes a thing yes friends plays a massive role in the creation of romy and michelle's high school reunion Okay, okay. So the, sh- the show is called Just Temporary because Romy and Michelle's characters, who are Tori and Nicole in the show, I don't know, are temps, I guess? Okay, I can speak from experience. A sitcom about people working as temps is a premise that is pitched at every college-level TV writing class since the beginning of time. Huh, see, I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've heard it so many yeah. times. Huh. I couldn't find the episode, but I did find the intro. Do you want to watch the intro? Have you seen this? No. The intro to Just Temporary, starring Lisa Kudrow and Christy Melvin. Oh, Mellon. my God. Let's watch it. Uh, it's a drag. How much longer can I take this? Wow. Oh, my cards never work and my bills are overdue. overdue. Marsha Cross. So Christy and Lisa were... Not the main character. This is trip. <laughs> this is yeah. It's like uh, it's like weird kind of salt and pepper crap. It's only temporary. Temporary. This is not my life. And it's it's like this woman hires her like two dipshit friends to work with her at a temp agency, and so it didn't make it past the pilot for some reason. I can't imagine why. But here's where Disney comes knocking. So Disney was looking at the massive success of Wayne's World, and they wanted to do a female version of Wayne's World. Because every movie, especially movies that star women, have to be a female version of a property that already is popular, right? Because, like, we live in hell. (laughs) Yeah. So before deciding to frame the script around 
a high school reunion, Robin Schiff toyed with a few concepts, including Roby and Michelle go to college and Roby and Michelle go to Japan. Okay. Why not? And the entire reunion bit started as a joke. This is Robin Schiff's quote. I brainstormed a joke where Romy and Michelle realized their lives have amounted to nothing while filling out reunion questionnaires. And it made me laugh out loud. So I thought I, that could be something. So they started pitching out Romy and Michelle's high school reunion in 1992. Wow. And Alex Schwartz was one of two women in the Touchstone Pictures creative group. And she says, there was not a lot of love for a feminist perspective. This is her quote. I know that sounds Mm -hmm. so self-serious, but it's the truth. It was all women in peril shit, like sleeping with the enemy or basic instinct. Take a listen, by the way, to Karina Longworth's amazing erotic 90s season of You Must Remember This about episodes on sleeping with the enemy and basic instinct. But Alex Schwartz says, women are always with men on screen, never with other women. So Robin's pitch felt so fresh. Yeah, the men in this movie are like they're there, but they're more like these fillers for Romy and Michelle's insecurities. Yeah, and they're treated like women are in male buddy movies. Yeah. Which is fine. They're they're just kind of there and they're definitely underwritten. (laughs) Yes. Except for Sandy Frank, who I love. Yeah. My man Sandy Frank. We do love Sandy Frank. So the script went through several rewrites over the next few years, the central plot stayed the same, which is that they pose as successful business women to impress their classmates at the reunion. But Touchstone Pictures like really liked the concept, but they didn't like the script. And there's a lot of bad blood between Robin Schiff and the studio because Robin believed in Lisa Kudrow. Robin, this is her quote, Lisa can get a laugh by saying, okay, but it's not necessarily going to read as hilarious. And so the studio didn't think that the script was funny. And so they tried to fire me and they were successful at one point. I was off of Romy and Michelle for most of 1993. I wouldn't say our interactions were contentious, but I got the impression that some of the executives didn't quite get it. And Disney tried to bring someone else in to make it funnier. By the way, there's a screenwriting book called uh, Writing Films for Fun and Profit by Robert Ben Garant and Thomas Lennon. And they say that the best thing that can happen to you is that a studio fires you off of your own film because that means you know your film's going to get made. But I digress. Huh. Real quick, have you seen any of May Martin's show no. on, I think it's on Netflix. No. It's like a couple years old. It's called Feel Good. And Lisa Kudrow plays her mother. Hell yeah. Lisa Kudrow's great in everything. Everything. She's great in everything. But like, as like the Friends generation, like I grew up watching her on Friends and she is a little bit like frozen in time for sure. me. Yeah. Via Friends and Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. But, and I've seen her in subsequent things too, but she is so good at messing with those lines and like delivery because she will say something like she's not a great mom. She's a little, I mean, she's great, but like Lisa Kudrow just ices her out and it is such a pivot. She was in a show on HBO that was like largely improvised. That was really, really funny called the comeback. I think comeback. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, I haven't seen it, but I know it's very beloved and sort of culty. So speaking of Lisa Kudrow and Friends, of course, in 1994, Friends makes Lisa Kudrow a household name. And all of a sudden, it's much easier to get Romy and Michelle made. Much easier in that it would only take three more years instead of never. Um, But they needed a Romy. So 
Christy Meller didn't make the cut because the studio didn't want to pair Lisa with the unproven actor, which mm-hmm. sucks ass. Yeah. I love Mira Sorvino in this movie, but like that's sh- that's just like a shitty thing, and it happens all the time, right? Like, like it is very much a Moneyball type of game where you try to package the the pieces that equal the best box office, and Lisa Kudrow basically could carry the movie by herself at that point. But in 1995, Amy Heckerling was coming off of Clueless, and that was the obvious choice for director, but she didn't really gel with the material, which is a shame because Clueless is, I think, her last good movie. Mm. Anyway, they went through a lot of potential Romies, including Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Tony Collette, who was just coming off of Muriel's Wedding. I could see Tony Collette, yeah. Yeah, I could definitely see Tony. Tony Collette actually passed on it, but we should Aww. do Muriel's Wedding for this show because I love ABBA. Oh, yeah. I've only seen that once, but I would totally watch it's, it again. Yeah. Yeah. And so Mira Servina comes in and, okay, in 20, I need to give some context because in 2023, yeah. Mira is known for this role. This is her iconic performance. But in 1997, she was like a prestige actor. She had been in Quiz Show, which is great. And she was in Mighty Aphrodite, which she won an Oscar for. She's the daughter of Paul Sorvino, who was in Goodfellas and who played Henry Kissinger and Nixon. So to use an analogy for today, this would be like Florence Pugh being the co-lead in a Dumb and Dumber movie. (laughs) That's good. Or like Dakota Johnson, if she had an Oscar. Yeah, I I do remember being a kid and reading somewhere that Mira Sorvino had won an Oscar and being like, really? Romy? Wow. And I still have not seen Mighty Aphrodite. It's too late. It's too late for me now. Probably too late. Because of the Woody Allen of it all. I can't see it. Yeah. But yeah, this this was like a wild career move for her. And everyone in Mira Servino's camp was like, um, are you sure that you want to do this? Her manager told her not to, her agent told her not to, but she met with the director, David Merkin, who I have a I have complicated feelings about David Merkin and his role in all this. But David Merkin said, quote, Romy and Michelle were conceived as one tall and one short. But I love the idea of Lisa and Mira playing this idiot blonde power couple. So couple of things. This one tall, one short, like reminds me of the fourth season of Barry. Do you re- <laughs> have you seen Barry? Yes. Where I've he's like, you're tall and the other guy's short. You can't have two tall guys. Oh, like uh, like Junior or something? Yeah, right. But it also doesn't <laughs> yeah. quite seem like David Merkin really understands the movie that he's making. Mm-hmm. What else has David Merkin done? So he was on The Simpsons. Oh, okay, okay. So David Merkin is a very funny guy. He, he has directed a bunch of stuff, including a movie that I love, Heartbreakers. Oh, yeah. The Jennifer Love Hewitt movie. Oh, is that good? No, I think it's I've not. seen like pieces of it. No, I mean, is it like is it like good in the way that you want to watch it? Like uh like like a walk to remember or something? Yeah, it's very silly. Yeah. I remember when I remember when Heartbreakers came out. Yeah, Sigourney I, Weaver I, like yeah. sings back in the USSR and it's fun. But he directed a, a few episodes of New Heart and he was on he did the entire series of Chris Elliott's Get a Life. But he was a producer on The Simpsons. That was like his big thing. And up okay. until up until today, he's produced 665 episodes of The Simpsons. Wow. So he, he, he kind of knows what he's doing from a comedy perspective. Right. 
And he also brought his kind of Simpsons touch to finding Romy's voice. So this is his Mm -hmm. quote. He says, one of my secrets on The Simpsons is to mix the pitch of the character's voice in the ear so it's kept engaging, kept engaged like with the eyes. Originally, Romy and Michelle had identical high-pitched voices in Robin's script, but Mira had just won an Oscar for doing that, and she Mm -hmm. didn't want to just mirror Lisa, so she brought her own thing. Wait, does the voice not remind you now that I'm thinking about it doesn't it remind you just a little bit of what uh what's her name did Elizabeth Holmes but like in a much (laughs) there's a quote at the end of this thing about Elizabeth Holmes uh well that that's I feel like that's my job on this podcast is to just jump ahead even though I haven't I haven't read read ahead but not read ahead no yeah uh no I think it's just like great I think it's just great minds we're melding (laughs) Speaking of melding, do you want to be Mira Sorvino? Yeah. Quote, the voice is a little John Wayne, a little Captain Kirk, but mostly from my kid sister, Amanda Sorvino. She and her best friend Murph used to talk like these deep-throated valley girls, even though we lived in the Jersey suburbs. Romy's voice came from me imitating my sister while leaning into that more masculine register of my personality. I love that she refers to her sisters by first and last name. My kid sister, Amanda Sorvino. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Robin says, when I first heard Mira on the set, I thought, what the fuck is that voice? No one knew that she was going to talk like that except for her, Lisa, and David. But we just let her do her thing. And Alex Schwartz, who is the part of Touchstone Pictures, says that the studio was also surprised by Mira's voice. But sometimes you just got to go with people's instincts. So Mira Sorvino talks a little bit about replacing the original Romy and how quickly she melded with Lisa Kudrow. You want to be Mira again? Quote, I knew it must be weird for Lisa because she had been playing Michelle thinking she knew these characters. I never saw Ladies Night, so I played Romy like a completely new character. But I just had so much affection for Lisa and liked her immediately. I felt like we had instant friendship chemistry. And Lisa Kudrow agrees. She says there was an immediate intimate between us she was just so open and shared herself to the point that we were bonding over the silliest things i remember running up to her and going mira they've got cookies with that toxic fat free stuff and we would just eat those things and laugh all day (laughs) so in the vogue oral history of romy and michelle they talk a lot about other people's like the cast and crew's experiences in high school and so i picked out a couple of interesting ones specifically robin schiff because a lot of this is based on her own experience she wrote the film and she says i was the funny smart jewish girl surrounded by blonde surfers wasps and volleyball players she went to high school in the pacific palisades it was important to me that romy and michelle were just as mean to people who they considered below them on the food chain and i wanted to show that everyone in high school made someone's life hell They also talk a little bit about Mira Sorvino's high school experience where she was a Star Trek nerd. She used to go around to like Star Trek. So like she keeps making Star Trek references in these quotes. And it's because she like went to conventions as a kid. So I think that she comes by this Romy thing very honestly. Oh, yeah. 
But David Merkin, the director, says most high school movies ultimately celebrate high school as an institution. And one of the reasons that Romy and Michelle is an outsider's movie is because everyone involved had a very negative view of that period. So, Rachel. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk. Let's get into it. The yeah. clock is you're on the couch. The clock is ticking. Okay. What was okay. what was high school like for you? High school for me was lonely. <laughs> Honestly, I had people that I spent time around, but I didn't feel like they were going to be my lifelong besties. I had a couple of friends who um, I I sort of floated around. I had a few friends from a few different circles, but the main crew that I hung with were, I think, all a little misfitty in their own way. Like one girl was a cheerleader and another was on the student council and another was really involved in theater and sports and another was really into like art. But they none of them really hung out in those main groups, if you will. And uh, we all kind of like came together in our mutual discomfort. I remember a lot of them being pretty mean to each other and just taking out their own insecurities on each other. And for me, I think I was just kind of there waiting it out. Like, I wrote for the school newspaper. I had a vague idea of where I wanted to go, but I was really happiest, like, in my room, in my beanbag chair. I had a beanbag chair with, like, a stack of books, just listening to CDs and scrolling through the an early version of the internet. I found social engagements to be stressful. Sure. And I remember because I would be like a little off in my head a lot of the time. I would tune out a lot. And then I would tune back in and be like, what? What What did you just say? And, <laughs> what was that? <laughs> what? And uh, my so-called friends like seemed to take this as an indicator that I was dumb, basically. Oh, so. delightful. So you were like yeah. halfway between... Michelle and Janine Garofalo, it seems like. That's a really, really good breakdown. Yes. I mean, without the chain smoking, because sure. like, I was terrified. Because your mom listens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was. I definitely identified with Janine Garofalo, but I had friends, but I was not in my element by any stretch. I feel like high school, like no one's in their element. Like, what a horrid place for that to be your element, you know? But like, you would look and see people who appear to very oh, much sure. be in their element. Like, okay, I'm not gonna name any names, but like, spill the tea. There was a there was one guy I ha- I remember I had a big big crush on him, and he was in every school play, mm-hmm. and he really was in his element. He has since moved to L.A. I've seen him. And he's been in some stuff. Sure. I I feel like finding yourself is part of the fun of growing up and you're like teens and 20s. And so if you like just know who you are, if you like if you're just like, yeah, this is this is who I am. This is who I'm going to be that early you like are losing either you're lying to yourself which is like the people who like stayed in my hometown i'm i'm sure the same is for you like half of them are just lying to themselves about wanting to stay there and living their lives which i experienced at my own high school reunion you went oh i went because in high school i was on the student council i was a class treasurer my two best friends were president and vice president 
And so I don't know. I would necessarily have considered myself popular, like a squad. That's what every popular person says. Well, I fine. I did all right. <laughs> um, yeah. But yes, not only did I have to go to the reunions, I had to plan the reunions. <laughs> Oh, God. So I planned our five-year and our 10-year reunion with the rest of the team. I did very little work. I'm I'm not going to take credit for anything. But did you th- guys charge? We did. Of course we did. How I much think. were tickets? I don't remember. I can't. I, I can ask. I did not go to my 10-year like reunion in part because of the audacity of to charge $85. Whoa, that's, that's heavy duty. And no open bar. Oh, and I think that the reason that we charged is because of the open bar. Like, I, I don't know what we would have charged otherwise. All right. Well, maybe you have one or the other, but not both. <laughs> so people have five-year reunions, which I always thought was kind of silly. But especially in, like, in 2009, like, we were the first, basically the first generation to have Facebook and, and social media the entire time right after we left high school so like everyone just still knew each other it wasn't like oh wow what have you been up to oh yeah uh i think i actually did show up at my five-year reunion because it was at a bar you could just walk in bar yeah in princeton and it was like so how was college yeah what what are you up to (laughs) that was it (laughs) but like i think a month or two before my five-year reunion my favorite teacher in high school was arrested oh for the exact reason you think. <gasps> and so one of the people that I talked to at the reunion was like contacted by the police because <laughs> there was like this big investigation and there was like many, many years of like accusations. And so they called this this girl and was like, hey, did, did this ever happen between you two? And she's like, no. And our 10-year reunion was not as as interesting, but there seemed to be two two kind of groups of people and it was the people who stayed in town and worked the kind of office middle management jobs or whatever and then there were the people who were like struggling like i was in la extremely struggling really looking for work i had just been there for like a year or two there were people who had moved to new york and were like trying to be musicians like mm. like we all kind of saw it in each other's eyes of like like we're not having a great time but <laughs> All of the like hometown people were like, oh, my God, you're doing amazing. You're living your dreams and all this stuff. (laughs) That reminds me of a girl's episode, the first season where Lena Dunham's character, it's not a reunion, but she does hang with high school friends. The norms. And she like gives herself a pep talk in the mirror before she leaves the house and she's like, you are from New York, therefore you are just naturally more interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and this is close to 15 years after Romy and Michelle, but I think that, you know, the lesson of Romy and Michelle's high school reunion is had they come in and said, we're living in Venice, California, and we're, and we're honest and we're struggling and we're working hard, like these fucking yokels, these hometown Tucsonites would be amazed by that yeah even though Romy and michelle's characters haven't made great career strides they are kind of living their best lives exactly they do exactly what they want to do they dress how they want to dress they make their own clothes they don't realize yet that they can perhaps capitalize off of designing their own clothes yeah but but, the only mistake that they make is lying right Mm -hmm. yeah and they go clubbing every night 
they are like live literally living on the beach. Well, not not like directly on yeah. the sand. They are not homeless. On but the boardwalk, they, or whatever. <laughs> they live in an apartment like overlooking the boardwalk in Venice, which I think probably was cooler in 1996. Maybe seven. <laughs> I do want to say like the town I grew up in is kind of weird because a lot of people do leave. It's not a town that a lot of people stay in. A lot of people like to move to it once they've hit adulthood, but it was very much like a lot of, even if people left or they stayed nearby, they were probably at least two towns away. Sure. If they stayed nearby, it was like a very overachieving atmosphere. You it can was, just say, you can just say it was Princeton. Well, it, well, technically Princeton, yes, but outside, so it was, it's West Windsor oh. is where I'm from. So I didn't go to like PDS. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or Lawrenceville, or I didn't go to a private school. I went to like a very overachieving public school so, in West Windsor. And it might as well, honestly, have been a private school for all the resources that we had. I was very fortunate. But that being said, like I looked at, I didn't go to my high school reunion, but I viewed pictures of my high school Ooh. reunion and all the people who went, they may not live near each other, but they definitely all still hang out. Sure. Yeah. And that was, that is so not my experience. Not your I think thing. I have, I have one very good friend left from high school and she was actually my best friend in middle school. And our lives just like took very similar paths, even though she went into finance for a minute, but now she's out here. She's a screenwriter. Hell Yeah. Yeah, One of uh, us. she's super, super talented and awesome. And that's like, I view like the reunion type setting as like a place where my soul would just go to die because <laughs> all you're doing is small talking. And like, I don't see those interactions as oh, being yes. well, the small like, worthwhile for my time. <laughs> but <laughs> I only like, the only reunion I want to have is like one with like my, my friend's duty, shout out duty, because yeah. like that's going to have some real substance and i feel lucky that like she's known me for my whole life but anyway (laughs) shout out to our high school friends man Mm -hmm. they made us what we are today we're gonna take a quick break sop up some of our salty tears and when we come back we're gonna talk a little bit about the iconic dance sequence and why cindy lopper won't be attending her high school reunion Saving money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options. In stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Let's talk a little about the famous interpretive dance scene. Let's. Time after time. But before we do that, let's listen to Time After Time. Sometimes you picture me, I'm walking too far ahead. You're calling to me, I can't hear what you've said. Then you Done wide. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me. Time after time. If you fall, I will catch you up. 
what you don't know is that we were watching the scene too but because this is an audio podcast you just have to believe us so setting the scene their lie has been outed they decide we're just gonna walk back into this ballroom in a tucson like hilton or whatever and (laughs) be ourselves we are gonna put on our awesome like lame pink and blue dresses and be our awesome selves like we're going to the club in la and they have a great moment where they they tell off their bully who is basically going back into bully mode at them mira sorvino gives like the iconic we don't give a flying fuck what you think speech and after that the rest of the classroom like the all their classmates are like i really love your outfits and yeah Lisa Luter, who's a former A-Squad member, now an associate fashion editor at Vogue magazine, compliments their dresses and kind of sticks up for them, which really like solidifies, okay, being yourself is the best possible thing to do in a situation like this. And so who comes in but Sandy Frank, former class geek, who's still in love with Michelle, and he flies down in his like helicopter- Mm-hmm. Because he's a millionaire, because he's created some kind of rubber for sneakers, except <laughs> one of my favorite lines, Lisa Kudrow is like, some kind of rubber for condoms? <laughs> and he comes right up to her, he doesn't talk to anyone else, but he's like, I've got everything I could possibly want, except for one thing, you, Michelle, would you dance with me? And Michelle, who's always just kind of given him the brush off, like, no, I don't want to dance with you. No, or rather, no, I don't want to go to the prom with you or like all the high school stuff. She's kind of gotten over herself. Everyone's getting over themselves. And Lisa Kudrow is like, okay, but only if Romy can dance with us because Romy and Michelle have gone through this like short term but pivotal obstacle in their own friendship. And now they're they're back. They're besties again. And Romy, Michelle and Sandy Frank do like a, a three person interpretive dance to time after time which was almost a disco sequence so yes tell me about the Mm -hmm. disco sequence because there is isn't there disco like earlier in the movie yeah kind of there's like a 90s rave remix of the bg staying alive earlier in the film and romy and michelle do a really awesome like synchronized dance together because they're they show up to the club early in the movie and it's filled with people beautiful people it's la and romy and michelle are like oh my god like there are no cute guys here tonight yeah like no cute guys at all and even one guy i think later this is after they're like gonna try to find for like fake boyfriends right yeah they're like looking for fake boyfriends and they're looking they're like trying to get jobs and boyfriends so they can show up to the reunion seemingly with their lives intact and like I still say this to friends. Like, I still quote this line. Uh, so a guy is asking Romy to, da- or is like about herself and trying to talk her up. And Romy's like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a suit salesman. And apparently that's not like highfalutin enough for her. So she's like, would you excuse me? 
I cut my foot earlier and my shoe is filling up with blood. And then she just kind of limps off. So these are the scenes where we get some like 90s updated 70s disco tracks. Like the 90s where I think very obsessed with the 70s. And yes, so that that's why we and now we, probably why we almost get a disco sequence in the three person dance scene, because we did get kind of a disco sequence earlier in the movie, like you said. So David Merkin, the director, told BuzzFeed in 2017 Quote, the original dance sequence was not an emotional one. It was a disco tribute to John Travolta. When I wanted to do a dance sequence at the end, it made sense for that to be an emotional dance sequence that calls back to the prom song. But it was also incredibly silly, ridiculous, stupid, funny, and moving all at the same time. That's the thing I love to do the most. So real quick, for context believe that Romy and Michelle dance like they slow dance together like when they realize yeah, at their Billy senior bails prom on her on Romy, Romy at the prom so Romy is all excited because she thinks at the prom that Billy her longtime crush will dance with her and Billy just is like plays a prank on her and honestly anyone who's ever been asked out as a joke will yeah, feel this in their hurts. bones like I did I, too, have been asked out as a joke. That Same. shit hurt. And hurts. Michelle is like, I'll dance with you, Romy. And then they slow dance to time after time. Is it time after time? I think it is. And they put magnets on Michelle's back brace or whatever. Yeah. High school might be over soon at the prom, but these issues are formative and painful. And they are revisiting them and... At first, Romy and Michelle are so excited to go to their 10-year high school reunion. But then when they start remembering these things, these these traumas, all of a sudden they're like, I don't know about this anymore. I'm not sure we should go. Like, high yeah. school is awful. This is what ultimately causes their their rift. So they're in the, the Sheraton or whatever. The three of them, Romy and Michelle and Sandy do this delightful interpretive dance to time after time. It's like a three-person dance, and it's like it's extra funny because, like, how did they learn this? Yeah, right. In, in what universe did the three of them know what to do? This is supposed to be unplanned. And it's like, it's like just sloppy enough to, like, maybe be unplanned. But it's like it's not like a like a fully choreographed thing like from She's All That or something. Yeah, She's All That is way slicker. Yeah, this is like a li- like a little. I don't want to call it sloppy, like pejoratively, but like it's like it's it's a little sillier. But to focus on the costumes, Lisa Kudrow's Michelle is in like a LeMay tutu, like a pink f- with like fur lined at the bottom. And Mira Sorvino's in a Star Trek outfit. Oh my God, was that supposed to be Star Trek? Is that why? Oh, I mean, I don't know for certain, but Easter egg. It, okay, it is. It yeah. seems like a Mira Sorvino Easter egg because it it looks like what the women in Starfleet wear and has the Starfleet logo right in the center of her chest. Oh my God, I never knew. I'm telling you, she's like a huge Star Trek nerd. It's so weird. I believe, no, I believe you. Someday I'll tell you about the time I went to a Star Trek convention oh and had God. a terrible time. Please, <laughs> please do. They they roll on the floor, they swing out. There's like a, a strange, like almost birthing thing. I did know that Mira Sorvino had been a dancer. She had dance in her background 
And there was some anxiety from Lisa Kudrow that she would not live up to her role in the dance scene. And you can tell, like, Romy, or aka Mira, she's doing, like, pirouettes. She looks some more trained. Lifting, yeah. She, yeah, yeah. She seems like a more trained dancer. But yeah, you're right. It is meant to be silly and kind of off the cuff and... <laughs> Like, but it's really, although Sandy Frank, aka Alan Cumming, is there, this dance is like a, it represents the reconnection of Romy and Michelle as best friends forever. Yeah, Sandy is ancillary. Yeah. Yes. So, fascinatingly, $240,000 of the film's $20 million budget was spent on securing the licensing rights for Time After Time. So much fucking money. Time After Time cost like a cool quarter of a million dollars to license. And the soundtrack as a whole actually cost a whole an entire $1 million. But... Time After Time does not appear on the soundtrack. And the only thing I could find on the entire internet, maybe you found differently or something more, but, quote, due to copyright issues. Yes. That's the only explanation we get as to why Time After Time is not on the official Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion soundtrack. I have my own theories. Yeah, that I mean, that implies that they that they licensed it for just the sync and not the soundtrack. Which is a shame. It is a shame. And this is like, you know, we see this periodically in other in other films, but this is such a pivotal musical moment in this movie that it's like it belongs on the soundtrack. In Cindy Lauper's defense, there was no way for her to know what a cult classic this, this movie would, be would become. Yeah. Yeah. Or how iconic the scene would become. There's a lot of long tail with this movie. So... Okay, Cindy Lauper fumbled the bag a bit in not letting the song be on, uh, or her label. We don't really know whose decision it was, but it's yeah, not on the soundtrack. Someone in her team. So let's talk a little bit about the song. It was released in '84 as the second single from Lauper's debut studio album, She's So Unusual, following Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Uh, time After Time was written by Lauper. In collaboration with Rob Hyman, who was at the time a member of the band The Hooters. The Hooters had like a hit song. Do you know what it was? Because I don't. I think I do. It's probably uh, one that like I would know if I heard it danced. and then just did not. And we danced like a wave on the ocean romance. Nice. I do know the name Rob Hyman. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about why time after time might work so well in the scene because like yes. although it technically is about romantic relationships when Cindy wrote it she was technically writing about some difficulty she was having with her boyfriend slash manager David Wolf but uh the lyrics to the song if you're lost you can look and you'll find me time after time if you fall I will catch you I'll be waiting time after time it is you, you could apply it to like a soul friendship it's not a lust song it's a relationship song whatever that relationship might be exactly so it's just a really like gorgeous ballad that is perfectly fitting with like the time that Romeo and michelle like their characters would have gone to high school together and it like really sums up and represents their long-time relationship and i think 
anyone who has had a long relationship with anyone, whether it's a friend or a partner, like a romantic partner, people, they change. They go through changes. They evolve. And even for two people as seemingly frozen in time or just simple, for lack of a better word, Romy and Michelle, like they like what they like and they kind of do the same things, but they have evolved and they are evolving. So there's the layers like I was talking about earlier on in the episode. This song really shows their like true bond connection and ability to get through the hard times. Like, I don't know if you've experienced this, Aviv, but I think your 30s are a really pivotal time. I wouldn't um, know. I'm not in my 30s. In <laughs> it for, for long-time friendships, like especially ones that you might make in your early 20s or in college or even high school. Like, I think in your 30s, people tend to like split off. And in your late 20s, people enter into relationships. They get married. They have kids. They move to different cities. Yeah, there's like an expanding and contracting yes. of of friendships. I know for me, one friend in particular, my friend, my college roommate, Clara, who's still one of my best, best friends, she and I bonded a lot over this movie, a lot. And we met when we were 17. And went on to become college roommates for the rest of the time. And we definitely have had our ups and downs. And then with other friends who I thought were equally close, like when the bad times start, then it becomes more tense. And then the friendship kind of, kind of, I think I've had maybe like two friendship ending moments in my life. And, uh, Oof. It like it's really like a learning lesson about like who's meant to stay in your life. And, you know, with Clara, my college roommate, shout out Clara, like we've gone through times where we things could have easily just blown up and then we'd never talk to each other again. But we what we have, we have talked about the like we have we face those times, those harder times together and we are so much stronger for it. I can't wait to go to her wedding next summer in Hawaii. Oh, yeah, and she... Where's my invite, Clara? <laughs> you just went to Hawaii. I did just go to Hawaii. Anyhow, that's that's my spiel. Time After Time was actually one of the last songs that Lopper was going to put on She's So Unusual, and I think the label wanted it to be her first single as opposed to Girls Just Want to Have Fun, but she did not want it to be her first single because she didn't really want to be pigeonholed. It's like a ballad singer, which is understandable. Yeah. And the labels didn't like girls just want to have fun because they thought that she was singing out of her range, which I think is like the craziest thing to ever think about a song. But yeah, the, they were not nuts about girls just want to have fun. Which is, it's funny, like Cindy's experience formatting um, the promotion of She's So Unusual is not unlike making Romy and Michelle's High School reunion because there is a lot of like what the top brass thinks is best yes. or will work versus what the artist thinks will connect and ultimately history proving that the artist had it right all along. Had it right. And, yeah. and Cindy had kind of a rough go of it. She was essentially a teenage runaway and bummed around New York in a bunch of different bands, faced a lot of really horrible assault and things of that nature and you know came out with this album at the age of 30. 
So she's also like writing this stuff at the same age as Romy and Michelle are not in high school, but in their like in like the present day in the reunion thing. So it's the perspective of like a nearly 30 year old person. Someone who's lived long enough to be able to sing a song like time after time. Who has a suitcase of memories. Yes. So surprisingly, while there are basically no quotes on the internet from Cindy herself about time after time, at least none that I could find, there are tons of quotes from the makers of the movie across the internet about the dance sequence. So in 2017, David Merkin told Bustle, quote, I had no idea whether I was even going to keep a dance sequence in the movie because it didn't have a meaning to me. And he said that the idea was polarizing. During, it, it's definitely it was definitely David, a choice and 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 David, he chose fuck up david correctly like yes and he said when you do something different and strange like that there's going to be a lot of people who react very negatively to it initially over time people were surprised at how they could appreciate how silly funny and stupid it was uh i am now just thinking how surprised i am that like why aren't more why haven't more people done this dance on tiktok they should. That's a, that's actually kind of surprising, too. I hope that they will. <laughs> Circling back to the definitive, definitive movie's oral history in Vogue, I wanted to read a few quotes from Mira, Alan, and Lisa, because I am on a first name basis with all of them now. So Mira said, quote, I, I took eight years of ballet, but I stopped dancing when I was 14. At that point, you had to either commit to more classes to improve or give up. I was already 5'9 and not that good. And Alan said, quote, I'd already done cabaret in London so I could dance about a bit, but I was by no means a proper dancer. Mira danced as a girl, so she came into rehearsals with some technical expertise. And Lisa, Lisa's a very good sport. Do you want to read Lisa's line? Yes. Lisa says, I told everyone that I could not dance. Smith the choreographer luckily understood that it'd be hilarious if Michelle thinks she's dancing, even though she's barely moving in her mind. She thinks she's just as good as Romy. Perfect. (laughs) Then David Merkin comes back in and he says the dance sequence was very controversial with the studio. There were conversations about tweaking it to be less quote weird. I knew by that point that we were alienating all the people in the audience who already weren't into it. That's why I wanted Janine to roll her eyes and walk out. She represents everyone who thinks it's stupid. And that is a great moment in the sequence where Janine Garofalo thinks her character thinks everything is stupid. She doesn't even know why she's at the reunion. She thinks maybe because she because her character has a huge crush on Sandy Frank and he kind of brushes her off. And then she sees, well, this comes before the dance sequence, but she sees Sandy Frank and she's like, that's Sandy Frank? What the hell was I thinking? Yeah. And she gets her own in the form of yeah. Justin Thoreau's cowboy. Clarence. He's, he's great. I, I love Justin Thoreau. I think he's a great writer. So I don't want to repeat ourselves because there's a little redundancy in some of these quotes, but... um. Mira said, I remember what it looked like, and I could probably do parts of it. I know I do a lot of piques. Am I brutalizing that? I don't know. Uh, Across the floor, and we make little circles over Alan. Uh, At one point, I spin around in the background while Sandy and Michelle have a little love moment. Very cute. I I did not watch it before this recording because I've seen it such a trillion amount of times, but I'm probably going to watch it tonight. (laughs) Yeah. So the movie did not test well. 
And it's weird what the director's kind of point of view of this is. So David Merkin says, I'm pretty sure that the top brass had not really seen the movie or had any idea what we were up to until that first screening. The head of the studio came up to me afterwards with one of the scariest grins I have ever seen and just said, very unusual movie. (laughs) And Robin Schiff says the first screening was a disaster. The whole time I was sitting in the back going this is so embarrassing people just didn't think it was funny and i thought it needed a lot of work and i was told it was it was the lowest testing movie in the history of touchstone pictures they just didn't understand they just didn't get it alex schwartz says i can't remember if it was the lowest rated film in disney history but those screenings did not go well believe it or not i had a much worse test screening for wes anderson's 1998 movie rushmore People literally walked out of that movie in droves, if that tells you anything about test screening audience. She goes on. Do you remember how the film opens with that long tracking shot of the ocean that pans through the girl's window? That's not a pan, but fine. That goes through the girl's window and into their apartment. The camera sort of drips over the food and the clothes and all the other detail. Where David liked to start almost every scene with a long, sweeping camera shot like that. And David says... Alex complained a lot that I started every scene with a tracking shot, which God forbid the movie looked interesting. I only put I only put them exactly where they needed to be. But she said it threw it off pace, which I don't think was the case. So basically, this is the the battle line has been drawn between David Merkin, who thinks that he's making uh, Citizen Kane, but also takes every opportunity to call it stupid. And Alex Schwartz who's like, this is a fun movie, just like. Let us edit it, please. Just let it be fun. Just let it be fun. This also came down to a fight over the music. So Alex Schwartz says the studio had a very different notion of what the music should be. And David was really touchy about it. We wanted the soundtrack to be poppier and include the types of artists we thought Romy and Michelle would listen to. The Go-Go's, Bananarama. David was interested in making the film sound a little more punk and kept suggesting people like R.E.M. Absolutely not. To which Merkin replied, the studio said that they felt the music wasn't feminine enough, which felt kind of sexist to me. They thought Entrance and Robert Palmer were too male. Yeah. What? And they were just scared to death of no doubt because they were an alternative ska band. I put Just a Girl in the beginning and they said, it. that's a little too edgy. We don't love it. Spoiler alert. They did end up going with Just a Girl, which totally works. It is a little bit opposite. It's a very current needle drop as opposed to all of the 80s needle drops, but it works. This is, by the way, why a director shouldn't do everything. Because mm-hmm. they just like are are myopic, right? Things got so rough that David Merkin threatened to take his name off of it without seeing the producer's cut. Okay. What are we going to do without a Merkin on our movie? <laughs> Merkin said that the studio reached out and said, you've got to come see the movie because we want you to stick by it. And they suggested screening it for me, David. And I said that there's no way I would go alone. So David had them screen it for his friends him and his friends which were james l brooks producer of many films and also the simpsons and carrie fisher noted star wars actor screenwriter and david merkin's romantic partner ah no big deal no big deal clang he he keeps dropping carrie fisher's name like a fucking anvil (laughs) and gary shandling a noted okay So Merkin says, I was seeing Carrie at the time, Clang, and so I brought her and Gary. They'd seen earlier cuts, so they I wanted them to be a set of fresh eyes who could tell what had and had not changed. That's actually not what fresh eyes are, but sure. 
Jim <laughs> is not only my boss on the Jim Brooks is not only my boss on the Simpsons, but also a dear friend and mentor. They were very sweet to come. I sat behind them off to the side so I could see their faces, but they couldn't see mine. Alex Schwartz tells this story. She says they we're all gathered in the studio screening room, and I remember pacing the hallway thinking, there's nothing else you can do. From what I remember, they really ended up loving the movie and telling David to simmer down. Good. Why Why did they tell David to simmer down? Well, if you ask David, he says, all of my tracking shots were restored. Ah. If they ever changed at all, except for the opening of the treadmill shot, which is fine with me, and the shot of Michelle entering the dream reunion ballroom, which I'm still not thrilled about. This was this was an interview in 2021. Only a single take was changed of the women driving away in the desert. My non-feminine music was also restored, and Gary and Carrie Clang said that they could barely notice any changes. And Jim, who had never seen a cut of the film before, said, wow, you're really a terrific director. They all convinced me that I'd be crazy to take my name off it and they were right it never actually got reworked because it can't be reworked (laughs) man shut up (laughs) i love i love how like the internal drama has only really it's like it's still there (laughs) it's still there Mm -hmm. he's still sore about it and like this isn't your thing i mean like you directed it it is a big part of you but like this is robin's movie Mm -hmm. robin is the one that understands these characters and there's like a lot of in and out in this vogue oral history about like how broad david wanted it to be i don't know he's he's not my favorite but because it took an extra month in post-production there was no money to promote the film and Romy and michelle went up against john cusack's gross point blank which also takes place at a high school reunion Oh, yeah, it does. So the movie did not do well in the theater, but according to Janine Garofalo, DVD and cable changed everything because it made it easier for young people to find things. Romy and Michelle did fine when it came out. This is Janine. But then a bunch of kids grew up on it. There's a good chance that the movie is airing on TNT or VH1 right now. And I hear about these parties in New York where people dress up and dance to Bananarama. So Romy and Michelle has a lot in common with like... Jawbreaker and mm-hmm. Empire Records, which is the subject of a previous podcast. Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions, sure. Yeah. Because of like cable and DVD sales and, oh, I was going to say Drop Dead Gorgeous, another good one. One of my all-timers. Same. Yeah. So when I got to college, I bonded so hard over those movies with so many new friends who also watched them and like but it had been easily almost 10 years since most of those movies came out yeah and the problem with the way movies are released now is the home video market literally doesn't exist and things are disappearing from streaming all the time now which Mm -hmm. you can read about in the in the trades and this is part of what the strike is about but there can't be cult movies anymore because there's no place to develop a cult right Ooh. and the movies that mean so much to people like your Drawbreakers and your drop dead gorgeouses and your Romeo and michelle's they have no place to grow and find their audience and it's really sad yeah david merkin talking about the long tail of Romeo and michelle says i directed meryl streep on an episode of the simpsons clang clang and got friendly with her because she was friends with carrie <laughs> one time she said you know, I've seen Romy and Michelle at least 20 times, right? She said she watches it all the time with her kids. So I 
I'm I'm not taking any of David Merkin's quotes out of context. This is kind of who I think he is. There's a great episode of the Dead Eyes podcast where the director of the movie Isn't It Romantic? You know the Isn't It Romantic movie with Rebel Wilson where she gets like a head injury? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember that movie. He talks about like certain movies are art and certain movies are a product. You're making hamburgers, right? You like the studio tells you what kind of hamburger they want. You make them the hamburger and then you go, you fuck off. Right. And we as artists, you and I, and probably most of the people listening love the art of stuff and love to think that everything can be art. And Romeo and Michelle is art, but mm-hmm. it's very clear that David Merkin thinks he's making a hamburger. <laughs> and, and you know, so you, you can't have a room full of artists and nothing else because nothing gets done. But like he, I don't know, man, like acknowledge that you did something special and acknowledge the other people, please. Amen. Amen. In 2005, Romy and Michelle in the beginning, which was a prequel television film, like a backdoor pilot, yeah. it was written and directed by Robin Sheff. It premiered on ABC Family. Catherine Heigl played Romy and Alexandra Breckenridge starred as Michelle. This movie sounds truly cursed. Yeah, it's like a lightning in a bottle thing. I mean, they tried to make a clueless show too. And I think that things went better uh, in like the making of Clueless. Like it like it doesn't sound like people were it's really truly amazing that Romy and Michelle kind of turned out as well as it did. Yes, agreed. Ha- because because of all the people who are on such different pages to make it and it took the force of will of 10 years of these characters existing and 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 people kind of getting to know them and love them and also lightning in a bottle for this movie to like get somewhere but this movie kind of like retcons Romy and michelle and makes them kind of the way they are in the movie but in high school which like we've seen them in high school like that's not how they were yeah, i think it's really hard to do a prequel project in general yes i've never seen the carrie diaries but i'm good (laughs) i think only the most diehard sex in the city fans would watch it It worse than and just like that i couldn't tell you because i haven't seen i I mean i've i've seen and just like that (laughs) i heard it's terrible feelings i have mixed feelings on it i i i do watch it because i just want to know what the characters are up to and it does and it does have its moments that are truly funny but it also has a lot of weak points it's a real mixed bag it's fan service it's like i'm watching it i don't know why i'm watching it but i'm watching it and speaking of fan service robin schiff even got Lisa Kudrow and Mira Sorvino on board for an idea that she called Romy and Michelle get married. But Disney, who still holds the rights to the film and to the characters, was not interested in making a sequel. Although they're like making a lot of hay in the press about like Romy and Michelle sequel anytime you want. Basically, the idea is that Robin Schiff guaranteed that it would make a hundred million dollars, but Disney's only interested in making movies that make 500 million dollars or more and david merkin to throw his hat in the ring once more says i contend to this day that elizabeth holmes must have been a fan that voice is pure mira even the way she went about her con is kind of Romy and Michelle-ish. <laughs> they claim to have invented something and tried to look around and sound the part. Isn't that exactly what Elizabeth did? Their post-it note scam didn't last quite as long as hers, though. About three and a half minutes, to be precise. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, man. 
David, what are you doing? He's not wrong. He's not wrong. But I can't see Elizabeth Holmes watching that movie. I definitely can. I don't know. Learning the like, wrong lesson, yeah. but definitely watching. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This Vogue article also tracked down Art Fry, the inventor of post-it notes. Oh, yeah, because in the movie, they say who does the invent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's brilliant. And so he yeah. says when... People I'm meeting find out that I invented post-it notes. They will immediately ask me about <laughs> Romy and Michelle. It's amazing how often the, the film comes up. I watched it again just the other day, and it holds up quite well, but Lisa Kudrow's speech about the glue is complete gobbledygook. Those words have nothing to do with my formula adhesive at all. That's that's the best takeaway from the whole oral history. <laughs> I agree. I When that came yeah. by, I was like, holy shit, they got Art Fry? That's brilliant. So, yeah, because like in the dream sequence, Lisa actually does give the chemical apparently incorrect formula for glue and then everyone is like oh wow cool yeah yeah i guess you really did invent post-its so save for a couple of guest spots on tv this would be the last a-list project for mira sorvino and it would take about 20 years away from romy and michelle to fully appreciate why because on October 10th, 2017, Ronan Farrow's article exposing Harvey Weinstein came out in The New Yorker. I'm going to read a quick quote from that. He writes, virtually all of the people I spoke with told me that they were frightened of retaliation. Quote, if Harvey were to discover my identity, I'm worried that he could ruin my life, one former employee told me. Many said that he had seen Weinstein's associates confront and intimidate those who crossed him and feared that they would be similarly targeted. Four actresses, including Mira Sorvino and Rosanna Arquette, told me that they suspected after they rejected Weinstein's advances or complained about him to the company representatives, Weinstein had them removed from projects or dissuaded people from hiring them. Multiple sources say that Weinstein frequently bragged about planting items in media outlets about those who spoke out against him. These sources feared similar retribution. So we lost out on 20 years, 25 years at this point, of additional great Mira Sorvino performances. Yeah, I remember being, say, like a teenager and still rewatching Romy and Michelle. And wondering what happened to Mira Sorvino. She's she's one of those people that just evaporated. Right. Uh, but And it was very confusing to me because I was like, didn't this woman win an Oscar? Yes. And people only have more love as the years go on for Romy and Michelle. So where is she? I don't get it. And then 2017 happens and, it's, and it, it really yeah. cleared up. I and- cleared that up. <laughs> 1999 seems to be like the last time that th- that seems to be like the the dagger because in that year she was in Summer of Sam the Spike Lee movie and at first sight which like isn't her fault that it wasn't very good but it was like her and Val Kilmer but and before that she was in The Replacement Killers Mimic Romeo and Michelle Beautiful Girls Mighty Aphrodite Barcelona Quiz Show like like lots and lots of great stuff and then it just goes straight into direct to DVD yeah. Like like she got blackballed. Yeah, like she's still working. She's but still not working. at the level that you would expect her. And not at the level that she deserves. And, exactly. and it's it's really, really sad. So what does it all mean? We have a movie that took nearly ten years to get made, started as a play, then a series, directed by a guy who maybe didn't understand it, recast with a prestige actor who 
was accidentally given her most iconic role in no small part because the rest of her career was ripped away from her by one of Hollywood's most notorious monsters. It's a movie about losers embracing who they are and dancing to a song written by a teenage runaway loser freak punk icon, Cindy Lauper. And I think it just shows how the Romies and the Michelles of the world find each other. This is what you were talking about in your when you're talking about the people that you found in high school, the losers and the freaks and the weirdos all make it out to the dance floor together somehow. Except I don't think any of us actually liked each other that much. Well, <laughs> in high school, in but high later, school. but later I, I, yeah, I met my, my Michelle's or Romy's. And, and it takes going through this ordeal for Romy and Michelle to probably truly see each other too. Mm-hmm. But the losers and the freaks and the weirdos all make it out to the dance floor together somehow. And this movie, not so much in theaters, but on late night TV and sleepovers, provided a North Star for people who didn't quite see themselves in the A squad. Or the B squad. Or the B squad. Yeah. And if Romy and Michelle have taught us anything, it's that life is one big circle because Romy and Michelle's high school reunion is returning to the stage. The stage musical has been in development since 2017, and according to the Vogue oral history it plans on hitting broadway this year but it looks like we'll have more romy and michelle to keep us company time after time beautiful chef's kiss thank you robin schiff was interviewed about this uh this musical and she said that unfortunately because you can't do a montage in a musical they had to cut the montage of them trying to find dates and therefore had to cut the line that you love so much which is uh, Romy saying, I just cut my foot and my shoe was filling up with blood. <laughs> she said that, that that really hurt her to that, have to cut. I mean, that would, that would fill me up with blood emotionally to have to cut. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Where can people find us on the internet? You can find us on the internet. The InSync Pod. Anywhere the internet exists. Anywhere. And you can email us now. Can you? We have emails. Yes, I am Aviv at theinsyncpod.com. Rachel is Rachel at theinsyncpod.com. You can talk to us. Let us know what you think. Give us give us some yeah. suggestions of future Review. episodes. Like, subscribe, tell your friends. Send us sweet kisses in the mail. Send us sweet kisses and suggestions for episodes in the mail. And until next time, thanks thanks for listening. I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Rachel Brodsky. Bye. 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 When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.